0: It can't be understated that we're in a
1: constitutional crisis. Yep. That's what we told you on Friday. How's that looking today?
2: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the
1: feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs
2: to the left me, to the right here i am stuck in the middle with you yep yes, I'm stuck in the from
1: Pacifica with Radio in Los Angeles this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA 98.7 in Santa Barbara 93.7 in San Diego 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake California Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. Up in Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, Goldendale, Washington's KVGD, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM950, KTNF, just to name a few, We also stream coast-to-coast ad around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indy Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us because we have very big news today. Yes, there is a new royal baby. Prince Harry and uh, Meghan? Megan? How do you say her I name? I think they uh, call Princess her Meghan, Meghan?
2: Markle, but Well, I'm let's not call,
1: sure. <laughs> We'll call them the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Desi Doyen. There you uh, go. They have welcomed their first uh, child, a boy, the royal family confirmed on Monday, According to the blaring uh, headlines at uh, CBS News, born at 526 a.m., weighed seven pounds, three ounces. The palace said it's been the most, according to Harry, who later told reporters, it's been the most amazing experience I could have possibly imagined. And so, yes, we are going to spend the next hour covering every facet, everything there is to know about the royal baby Everything you need to know about the (laughs) royal baby, which, by the way, I think we have already done. So that's that. You're welcome. No, we are not going to cover that because there was another news story that broke shortly before the royal baby news with headlines uh, such as, quote, one million species under threat of extinction because of humans. U.N. report finds. So, one royal baby versus one million species threatened with total extinction from planet Earth. Which one do you think will get the most coverage today, Des?
2: I'm sad to say I think it's the baby.
1: Yep. But not on our show, uh, at least. Uh, It's not even a contest here, so you are welcome. One million of the planet's eight million species are threatened with extinction by humans, humans, Scientists warned on Monday in what is described as the most comprehensive assessment of global nature loss ever. The landmark report paints a bleak picture of a planet ravaged by an ever-growing human population whose insatiable consumption is destroying the natural world, according to CNN. Well, uh, welcome to another big news week, uh, which is uh, starting to sound, I got to say, more like a Uh, Marvel uh, Avengers storyline, frankly, than real. But uh, here we are. This is real. Unfortunately, this is not a movie. Yeah, we'll get to some of this Donald Trump stuff and more concerning uh, the 2020 elections. we got a lot of that ahead, but this seems important (laughs) and it seems like it's not going to get the coverage that I think it deserves. Seth Borenstein at AP notes that it is not too late to fix this problem, according to the U.N.'s first comprehensive report on biodiversity. Report co-chair Eduardo Brondizio of Indiana University warned at a press conference, we have reconfigured dramatically life on the planet. Species loss is accelerating to a rate tens or hundreds of times faster than in the past. According to the report, more than half a million species on land have, quote, insufficient habitat for long-term survival and are likely to go extinct, many within decades, unless their habitat habitats are restored. The oceans, the report notes, are no better off. George Mason University biologist Thomas Lovejoy who's been called the godfather of biodiversity for his research. He was not part of the report, but he commented to Associated Press that, quote, humanity unwittingly is attempting to throttle the living planet and humanity's own future. The biological diversity of this planet has been really hammered, he says, and this is really our last chance to address all of that.
2: Last chance to address it. Now, a lot of folks think that, oh, we have a population problem. No, we don't have a population problem right now. What we have is a consumption problem that Mm. the United States, for example, consumes something like 25 percent of the world's resources annually. But we have only about, oh, I don't know, four percent of the population. That's the issue now. It's consumption.
1: And it does talk about that in this report. But let me give you just some of these stark and frightening numbers. First, uh, conservation scientists uh, were in Paris to issue the report. It's more than a thousand pages. comes from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. It includes more than 450 researchers who use 15,000 scientific and government reports to compile this one. And it had to be approved, this report, by representatives of all 109 nations who are party to the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity. Other than that, it's totally fake news. Don't pay attention to it. Uh, Did you hear there's a new royal baby? (laughs) So uh, CNN says there, uh, um, quotes, Sandra Diaz, co-author of the report and professor of ecology at the University of Cordoba, Cordoba, that there is very little of the planet left that has not been significantly altered by us, she says, says the countries in the global north, that would be us, are particularly to blame for nature damage to their, quote, unsustainable levels of consumption. As you said, Des, especially yes. when it comes to fishing and logging. In 2015, for example, a third of marine stocks were being fished at unsustainable levels. And the amount of raw timber being harvested has increased by almost half since 1970. Up to 15% of it is cut illegally, according to the report. At the same time, marine plastic pollution has increased tenfold. Since 1980, with an average of 300 to 400 million tons of waste dumped into the world's water annually, this has uh, contributed to more than 400 ocean dead zones. Totaling an area bigger than the uh, the size of the U.K., areas that are so starved of oxygen that they can barely support marine life anymore. Around 10% of insect species are threatened with extinction. percent There has been a 300% increase in global food crop production since 1970. 23% of land areas have reduced agricultural productivity due to land degradation. About 25% of greenhouse gas emissions are caused by land clearing for crop production and fertilization. Around half of all live coral reef cover has been lost since the 1870s. And 25 million kilometers of new paved roads are expected by 2050. Much of these... uh, These numbers, much of these data, Des, are uh, reports that you've covered over the years in the Green News report. We've talked about them, and here they are all brought together. Yeah, this is
2: the most comprehensive survey ever done of life on the planet Earth. I mean, we are hitting the system with a sledgehammer again and again and again. And the point that they're making is this extinction rate is happening faster than at any time in human history so there's no time for all of these animal species, plant species, insect species to respond to in order to evolve to these changing circumstances and loss of habitat. Ecosystem services, these are the things that we rely on to survive. It's our life support system. This is a problem.
1: This is a big problem. And this, uh, if you only read the 39-page summary, uh, you know, highlighting five ways that people are reducing Biodiversity. Uh, they're turning grasslands and other areas into farms, cities and other developments. The habitat loss leaves plants and animals homeless. About three quarters of Earth's land, that's two thirds of its oceans and 85 percent of crucial wetlands have been severely altered or lost. A third of the world's fish stocks are now overfished. Permitting climate change from uh, the burning of fossil fuels to uh, make it too hot, wet or dry for some species to survive almost half of the world's land mammals, not including bats for some reason that's thrown in. And nearly a quarter of the birds have already had their habitats hit hard by global warming allowing invasive species to crowd out native plants and animals. The the number of invasive alien species per country has risen 70 percent since just 1970, with one single species of bacteria threatening nearly 400 amphibian species. Yes. This this, uh, Lovejoy... One of the uh, co-authors here said we can uh, actually feed all the coming billions of people without destroying another inch of nature, making the point you cited at the top, Des. Much of that can be done by eliminating food waste and being more efficient. But, notes Watson, who uh, headed the report, business as usual is a disaster. We will link, of course, to the report when we post the show at bradblog.com. Yes. Just
2: one final thing. It's a human problem. They point out that there are human solutions to this.
1: Oh, yeah. And didn't even get to the aspect of how global warming is affecting all of this and how uh, the coral reefs will dwindle by 70 to 90 percent if temperatures go up just 0.9 degrees Fahrenheit. If it goes up 1.8 degrees, 99 percent of the world's corals will be in trouble. Anyway, back to business as usual here, uh, which after all of that, everything should seem pretty much less worrisome right now. (laughs) So, right? You're welcome. Uh, Speaking of business, U.S. markets racked up steep declines on Monday uh, before clawing back some of those losses. Although uh, with the latest comments from the administration after the market closed, I suspect Tuesday is going to be an ugly day as well. All of this due to global fears of a trade meltdown between the U.S. and China that have resurrected worries of an economic slowdown. Why? Well, because Donald Trump. That's why. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged more than 450 points at the start of trading on Monday. An hour later, it had pared back some of those losses. But the market volatility follows a global sell-off ignited by a weekend tweet. President Donald Trump that threw a curve into trade negotiations with China, according to Washington Post. The president threatened to increase tariffs from 10 percent to 25 percent on $200 billion uh, worth of Chinese goods on Friday and then follow up with a new 25% fee on all remaining Chinese imports, quote, shortly thereafter. That surprise move jeopardized talks uh, between U.S. and China as the two largest economies in the world looked to have been headed for a deal, And then in the middle of the Washington Post story, as I'm I'm reading about this, they link to another story at uh, Washington Post with the headline, Chinese see Trump as a Marvel villain out to destroy them. So it's not just me who is seeing everything today as if it was a goddamn Marvel storyline, for Christ's sake. So uh, anyway, what did Donald Trump tweet that caused this panic? Well... He tweeted, quote, for 10 months, China has been paying tariffs to the U.S. of 25 percent on 50 billion dollars of high tech and 10 percent on 200 billions of other goods. These payments are partially responsible for our great economic results. These payments are responsible for our great economic results, he said. The 10 percent will go up to 25 percent on Friday. So now I. Really, frankly, resent the necessity of using this show as a fact check for the president of the United States, particularly when it's something that we have fact checked before. But Trump's repeated claims here that China has been paying tariffs to the U.S. and that that is partially responsible for our great economy. In this case, 25 billion, 25 percent on billions of high tech and, you know, other goods.
2: It's all false.
1: It's all false. It's all false. China is not paying any of that. You are. We are. Americans are. No matter how many times he lies to the public about what tariffs are and how they work, they are taxes on imported goods. Ta- t- uh, imported goods taxes that you and I pay for these things when they are imported into the U.S. for purchase by Americans. We are paying these taxes, these tariffs. It is a tax increase for the American public. No matter how many times the president of the United States repeats his lie that China is paying billions to America because of the tariffs that he has unilaterally imposed on goods that we import from them and from other nations who are allies with us. But since I'm, you know, just some libtard uh, Trump hater bringing you fake news, uh, let's turn to Tom Giovanetti Giovannetti, just, uh, how he describes this in response to Trump's idiotic tweet, which sent world markets tumbling on, on Monday morning. Now, Giovanetti. He had a short tweet thread on Sunday that I'll share with you. He's the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, which is a conservative policy shop, which describes itself as, quote, a free market policy think tank that focuses on liberty, economic growth, innovation and other strategic issues. All right. His Twitter profile describes him as a supporter of, quote, the free market, limited government, Tech, IP, Constitution. He includes a, a, cr- a cross or crucifix. I don't know what it is. Uh, so I guess he's a Christian as well in his uh, profile. He says he's a theologian. He uh, notes that, quote, culture precedes politics. And he points to the Dallas Seminary. So he's no libtard lefty like Desi Doyen here. <laughs> uh, he's not a Trump hater, presumably, you know, like people like me. Uh, here's how he responded to, the, to Trump's tweet. When Trump was claiming that China is paying us billions in tariffs. Uh, So you don't don't take this from me. Take it from him. He says, let's correct the factual errors in Donald Trump's tweet. One, China isn't paying the tariffs. Americans directly pay the tariffs. Tariffs are paid at the border by the importer to get the goods released. Trump's tariffs are paid by the American importers, not by China. Two, government revenue is not a proxy for the health of an economy. Higher taxes raise higher revenue, uh, raise higher revenue rates, but harm an economy. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Giovanetti here. But I'm trying to make the case about tariffs and who pays them in general in in hopes of deprogramming some of those who may actually think that Trump knows what the hell he's talking about when he says these things. So this is the conservative Giovanetti saying this. He says Trump's tariffs are a form of higher taxes and so are indeed increasing federal revenue. But this has nothing to do with the health of the economy, he says. Three, not only is federal revenue not a proxy for economic health, but in fact is inversely related to it, driving much higher revenues to the federal government through higher taxes, he says, has never been a conservative policy goal. Again, I don't agree with this, but I'm letting the conservative here explain. Four, if in fact President Trump raises tariffs further, he will be further Raising taxes on Americans through tax reform. President Trump dramatically lowered taxes with one hand, uh, but through his tariff policies, he is raising taxes with the other. So uh, there's a few more tweets in that thread, but you get the idea. This is not just me. This is actual, you know, economists, actual conservative economists trying To correct the president's B.S. here, Steve Goldstein at Market Watch, not exactly a liberal publication either. He agrees with this assessment. Uh, He writes this afternoon that Trump's weekend tweets threatening additional tariffs bring new emphasis to the issue of how his administration's imposition of these extra levies has impacted American finances. He says there are two main sources of additional U.S. tariff revenue, the tariffs or taxes levied on Chinese goods and those on steel and aluminum products from a variety of countries. According to the Trade Partnership, which is a D.C.-based consulting firm, the Chinese goods and steel uh, goods and steel and aluminum tariffs represent 11 percent of all U.S. imports, which Trump said. Were quote partially responsible for our great economic results. Well, Goldstein says that is not true. It's true that tariff revenue has, in fact, soared from about three and a half billion a month to 6.6 billion a month, but that we are paying for that and that it doesn't help. It amounts to almost nothing in proportion to the federal budget deficit, which he notes has gotten worse even as tariff revenue has started to increase. That's because of the impact of the Republican Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which slashed corporate income tax receipts. So even with all of this, the deficit continues to get worse. The budget deficit continues to get worse. How does that affect the broader economy? Well, Goldstein notes that in the last three quarters where tariff revenue has shot higher, the U.S. gross domestic product has grown by 2.9%. He says that's very good, but to say those tariffs have helped that happen is, to put it mildly, a stretch. Actually, Mr. Goldstein, to put it mildly, it is in fact a lie. And, uh, you know, the folks at MarketWatch should call it as much. They are a well-read, mainstream corporate publication, and they should call out what the president is saying as a lie, not a stretch. It is a lie. He is not telling the truth. He's got a lot more here on how much better the economy would be, and it's questionable, actually, how good it is. I know there's a lot of numbers that you hear, oh, unemployment is low, and uh, so on and so forth. Keep in mind, those numbers are coming from Donald Trump's own administration, an administration who has proven itself willing to lie about anything and everything. For the most part, the uh, economic policies in place coming out of the Obama administration have led to where we are. And what Donald Trump has done has made things worse objectively than they might otherwise be. Had he not showed up at all. So, you know, before we continue to pass around the idea that, you know, Trump's economy is fantastic and at all time highs, be very wary of what you are being told on that front for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, U.S.-China trade talks were not the only source of tension as the market opened on Monday. The U.S. is deploying an aircraft bear- a carrier battle group and a whole bunch of bombers to the Persian Gulf to fend off what the Washington Post misleadingly describes as any pro- uh, provocations from Iran. Now, who's doing the provoking here, Washington Post? Uh, The White House has removed all exemptions on countries who are buying Iranian oil, and the Trump administration has said it wants to drive Iranian oil exports to zero. So imagine if some country did that to us. Uh, You know, it, it said that, you know, anyone who does business with the U.S. will face serious sanctions. Would, if we responded to that, would we be the ones provoking In that case, it just makes no sense, but that's how this is being reported. Trump wants Iran to halt missile development and renegotiate parts of the international nuclear treaty that the U.S. withdrew from last year. Uh, So, (laughs) Ed Yardini, the president of Yardini Research, uh, in a report today says stocks sold off on Monday because the widely anticipated U.S.-China trade deal seems to have hit a roadblock. In addition, tensions flared in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza. Well, yeah, tensions flared. That's a nice way to put it. Uh, And uh, between the U.S. and Iran. One of the two developments, Yardini notes, the second uh, poses a greater risk to world order than the first because presumably, well, Israel and Gaza have been fighting for years. But if we see a war between U.S. and Iran... Well, all bets are off. Don't worry. Donald Trump is on it. He knows exactly what he's doing. And uh, yes, Chinese uh, is paying the U.S. billions in tariffs. Right. Except, of course, the exact opposite is the truth. Take a quick break here. We will come back with more truth from D.C. and in New York, where Trump uh, his uh, former lawyer is going to prison on Monday for three years for a criminal conspiracy, and that was uh, one that was, according to prosecutors, directed by the president, who doesn't seem to be going anywhere for the moment. Uh, and later on in the show, Inmates Voting, a Radical Idea, Brad Blog's Ernie Canning will join us to explain that it is anything but. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Michael Cohen is now doing time. I'll get to that in a moment. But first, according to an open letter published by more than 400 former federal prosecutors on Monday, President Donald Trump would have been indicted for obstruction of justice in special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation, if he did not hold the nation's highest office, the ex prosecutors who served under both Republican and Democratic administrations, going back to Dwight D. Eisenhower said that Attorney General William Barr's decision not to charge Trump with obstruction, quote, runs counter to logic and our experience. The letter added, each of us believes that the conduct of President Trump described in Special Counsel Robert Mueller's report would, in the case of any other person not covered by the DOJ's Office of Legal Counsel policy against indicting a sitting president, It would have resulted in multiple felony charges for obstruction of justice. We believe they write strongly that but for the OLC memo, the overwhelming weight of professional judgment would come down in favor of prosecution for the conduct outlined in the Mueller report. Well. I'm gratified to know that some 400 former federal prosecutors agree with the argument that I've been making here on the broadcast since the day the redacted version of Robert Mueller's uh, report was finally published. Yes, they say anyone else, if they didn't have dispensation, the immunity that has been granted to the president of the United States inappropriately, I would say. We have argued on this show by the Office of Legal Counsel, the OLC. Anyone else would have faced a prison time or at least a trial on multiple counts of obstruction for the behavior as outlined by Robert Mueller. And that is before we have even seen the underlying evidence to the Mueller uh, probe. In their letter, the former prosecutor cited several instances detailed in the report that could, in their view, have warranted an obstruction charge, including Trump telling former White House counsel Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller. Trump attempting to have former AG Jeff Sessions take over the investigation after he had already recused from it. Trump trying to get Sessions to limit the scope of the probe and Trump attempting to influence the testimony of his former lawyer, Michael Cohen, and his former campaign chair, Paul Manafort. By uh, influence, they mean dangling uh, pardons uh, for those guys in hopes that they would lie to federal officials. Both Manafort and, as of today, Michael Cohen are now in prison for doing exactly that. Among other things, lying to federal officials in other Donald Trump administration related obstruction news. The House Judiciary Committee has scheduled a vote for Wednesday on a report recommending that Attorney General Bill Barr be held in contempt himself for failing to turn over an unredacted version of Mueller's report if the recommendation passes. In a House vote on Wednesday, the next step would be a vote on a contempt resolution on the floor of the House of the U.S. Representatives. The Judiciary Report released on Monday reads that although the committee has attempted to engage in accommodations with Attorney General Barr for several months, it can no longer afford to delay and must resort to contempt proceedings. Democrats have issued a subpoena for the full report and the underlying evidence, bar the nation's top law enforcement officials, has refused to comply with that lawful subpoena, in addition to refusing to appear for a hearing in the Democratic Majority House Judiciary Committee last Friday. House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler said in a statement with the announcement of uh, of the vote coming up on Wednesday, quote, if the department presents us with a good faith offer for access to the full report and the underlying evidence, I reserve the right to pro- uh, to postpone those proceedings. Indeed, we spoke with former House Judiciary Committee General Counsel Ted Kalo on Friday's broadcast. And if you missed that conversation, I strongly suggest you download it. Uh, and give it a listen uh, from bradblog.com. It offers a roadmap as to where all of this may or may not go in the days and weeks and months and potentially even years ahead. Kalo explained why the Democrats have been going to such lengths to give Barr and other administration officials who have also been ignoring lawful subpoenas uh, at the order of the president why they have been why the Democrats have you know been giving these people every chance to comply before bringing down the hammer basically Kalo told me if these matters go to civil litigation as they almost certainly will at this point they will want to show that they bent over backwards to try to accommodate any and all administration concerns. Now, just before air today, uh, Donald Trump's Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, has said that he will not, in fact, turn over Donald Trump's tax returns, as is required by law to the House Ways and Means Committee, which has requested them. All but assuring now that the committee will also turn to a vote of contempt against Mnuchin, I'm guessing, and the IRS commissioner, who is required to turn over these documents. But they have not, despite burning through several extended deadlines offered in good faith by the Democratic Majority Committee. The resolution to be voted on Wednesday in the Judiciary Committee notes that, quote, access to these materials, they're talking about the full Mueller report and its evidence, uh, is essential to the committee's ability to effectively investigate possible misconduct and consider appropriate legislative oversight or other constitutionally warranted responses. Oh, the Constitution. So quaint. Uh, The resolution also mentions impeachment. As one of those constitutionally warranted responses, quote, as well as the consideration of other steps such as censure or issuing criminal, civil or administrative referrals, Uh, all as reasons why Congress needs to see that full report and why they issued the subpoena that is being ignored by the nation's top cop. Uh, The resolution says no determination has been made as to such further actions and the committee needs to review the unredacted report, the underlying evidence and associated documents so that it can ascertain the facts and consider our next steps. Make no mistake, this is decidedly not partisan politics as usual. This is, as Kalo told me uh, the other day, again, the former general counsel served for 10 years in that role. The the top lawyer on the House Judiciary Committee, he told me that we are in an unmistakable constitutional crisis that is happening right now. TPM's Josh Kavinsky writes today that the intensity of the fight, uh, as, as Trump has instructed all The current and former executive uh, agency officials to not cooperate with subpoenas, and he's even suing his own bank and accounting firms to not turn over documents via congressional subpoenas, uh, that this intensity has shocked many former House solicitor and deputy general counsel Charles Tiefer. Uh, told Kavinsky, quote, in my 40 years of experience since I started work for the Congress in 1979, I have never seen this level of resistance and refusal. Former historian of the House of Representatives Raymond Smock agreed that the current situation is, quote, unprecedented. He said even during the Watergate years, you had Nixon's people coming up and testifying and providing documents. There was pushback, but they came. One who did come, Michael Cohen, uh, Trump's former personal lawyer and fixer, at least until he got a new one in uh, Bill Barr, uh, reported for federal prison on Monday morning. Amid a mob scene of reporters and camera operators, Cohen made one last statement before reporting to prison for three years.
2: I hope that when I rejoin
1: my family and friends, that the country will be in a place without xenophobia, injustice, and lies at the helm of our country. There still remains much to be told. And I look forward to the day that I can share the truth. And thank you all very much. So he means that when he gets out of prison in three years that Trump will no longer be in office. As a federal felon in New York state, he will not be allowed to vote next year, even against the guy who directed the criminal campaign finance conspiracy for which Cohen is now going to jail. Seems to me like he, of all people, should have a voice in that presidential election next year, but he won't as a federal felon. But so should millions of other inmates who are not serving time and are disallowed from voting. We will talk about that next with Ernie Canning, who argues that inmate voting is not, or at least should not be, a radical idea. I think I agree. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. (laughs) And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Last November, nearly 65% of Florida voters chose to adopt Amendment 4, overwhelmingly a state constitutional amendment that restores the right of former felons, except for murderers and sexual predators, to vote. With Iowa and Kentucky, Florida was the last of three states in the U.S. to to continue the shameful Jim Crow-era lifelong prohibition on voting rights for former felons who have served their time by completing their sentences as well as their Probation and parole, etc. Some one and a half million former felons have been barred from voting in the Sunshine State. That includes one out of every five African-Americans or 20 percent. A lot of those folks began to register, finally, to vote as of January of this year when last year's landmark constitutional amendment kicked in. But on Friday last week, the GOP-dominated state legislature on party lines adopted a measure that would undermine Amendment 4 by restricting those with unpaid restitution or court fees from being allowed to register or vote. Basically, they're telling you if you have money, you can vote. If you don't have money, you can't, said Patrick Penn, who, according to The New York Times, spent 15 years in prison for robbery and said he does not know whether he owes money to the court, but worries that it could now prove a complication when he gets ready to cast a ballot. That's not what the people voted for, he said. The vast majority of criminal defendants are poor when they are arrested and even poorer when they are released from prison. The new restrictions have been attacked by civil rights groups as a poll tax and the initiative's backers as an exercise in Republican power politics, driven by fears that people with felony convictions are mostly liberals who could reshape the electorate ahead of the presidential elections in 2020 and beyond, according to The New York Times. If the state's new Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, signs the bill as expected, it will almost certainly be challenged in court, as even those who have had Uh, who have long had no right to vote but have registered to vote since January when Amendment 4 kicked in, they could once again lose their right to vote. The Times notes restoring voting rights to those who have completed felony sentences has become a national issue with most states over time, loosening or lifting barriers that limited access to the polls, So much so that at a recent town hall, the Democratic candidates for president were asked whether even prisoners, not just former ones, should be allowed to vote. Now, we spoke here on the broadcast recently with the leader of a new ACLU campaign called Rights for All. They are hoping to get all the candidates on record, not just Democrats. But, well, there are a lot of Democrats running trying to get them all on record regarding their position for restoring prisoner voting rights, not just former prisoners, but current inmates. As I noted um, when I spoke with him, uh, that, that of course, is seen as a radical idea for many, including many Democrats. But shouldn't those most directly affected by the laws uh, made by the people who are elected have some say in those laws? Shouldn't Michael Cohen, for example, who uh, began his three-year sentence in federal prison on Monday, shouldn't he be allowed to vote in the next presidential election for or against the man, that would be the president of the United States, who directed the criminal conspiracy for which Michael Cohen is now serving time, while the president himself is off the hook, only because he happens to be the president? and uh, may only be the president thanks to the campaign finance fel- felony conspiracy that he directed, Donald Trump, not Michael Cohen, that he uh, Mike, uh, Donald Trump directed to pay hush money to two women with whom Trump had had affairs just before the election. Well, a number of Democratic candidates have uh, wavered or demurred entirely on the idea of inmate voting when asked During the ACLU's rights for all campaign Republicans, of course, as you might have guessed, have simply blasted the idea as a radical one that would allow mass murderers such as uh, the Boston Marathon bomber or uh, other violent miscreants uh, to have a voice in our democracy, which they argue was justifiably taken away from them but it's not only murderers and violent felons who lose their right to vote currently in 48 states while incarcerated so do those who are in prison for any manner of things uh, non-violent drug-related felonies civil disobedience should they lose their vote as well I'm short on time, so uh, no uh, time today to share this audio clip that was from Howard Zinn's 1970 speech called The Problem is Civil Obedience, which he delivered at Johns Hopkins University uh, instead of appearing in court at the time in relation to his arrest for blocking passage at an army depot of troops who were bound for Vietnam. Should someone like that also lose their right to vote when and if they are incarcerated? Or should they have a voice in the very issues for which they are serving time in protest? While many regard the idea of inmate voting as a radical idea, Ernest A. Canning, a retired attorney and longtime progressive who has been writing at Bradblog.com now for longer than I care to remember at this point, he argues in a brief essay today that inmate voting is not a radical idea. Oh, really, Mr. Canning? I should note before he joins us that Ernie is also a Vietnam veteran himself and served as a senior advisor to the Veterans for Bernie group back in 2016. He appears to be playing that role once again in 2020. Sanders, of course, hails from one of only two states in the U.S., Vermont and Maine. Uh, which both, unlike the other 48, already allow inmates to vote and have been doing so without incident for many years. Ernie Canning, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. How are you, Brad? Oh, I'm hanging in there trying to keep up with everything uh, as as it moves forward and trying to keep our eyes on the election, uh, where I hope that we can do something about this fine mess. I, I uh, let's jump into this. I wanted to get some um, some of your reasons why inmate voting is not, or at least should not, be seen as a radical idea. But let me start by allowing you to respond to those on the right who have immediately jumped on this issue, saying you want to let the Boston Marathon bomber and the the white supremacist uh, who uh, carried out a mass shooting at the uh, uh, killed nine African Americans at the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in South Carolina. You want to allow those people to have a voice in our elections, Ernie?
0: Well, those two guys are actually uh, uh, under death sentences right now. And the, question, the first question you have to ask is, what does society gain by depriving them not only of their lives, but of the right to vote while we're wait, waiting for them to be executed? Is there some, something something that we gain by uh, by even with those heinous criminals mm-hmm. uh, uh, being able to vote. Uh, it's certainly not going to... You can't make the argument that that taking away the franchise, in addition to putting someone in prison or taking their lives, is somehow going to deter future crime. I mean, they did a... Stu- the recent studies indicate that uh, it, it's questionable whether even the death penalty serves uh, as a deterrent to murder. So why would anybody think that... Uh, that taking away uh, the right to vote—the only thing that that the taking away the right to vote does—is it satisfies some uh, deep-felt uh, uh, desire to you know uh, to punish people and and you know maybe there's something there, but uh, but from a societal standpoint, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And what really troubles me is mm-hmm. that, for example, Donald Trump, who you mentioned, yeah. uh, you know he, he said this is deeply offensive. But this is the same guy who who repeatedly incites violence against people like uh, uh, Ilhan Omar, mm-hmm. you know, representative uh, who happens to be Muslim, yep. and who, who uh, not only supports the NRA, but refuses to support legislation designed to prevent uh, uh, white nationalists from carrying out uh, uh, mass murder. So I, my question to those people would be, which poses a greater danger, inmate voting or the NRA? <laughs>
1: That's a good question. Uh, Yeah. And and, you know, when he says it is deeply offensive, well, uh, I find it deeply offensive that, uh, you know, a man who about some 400 former federal prosecutors have said would otherwise be in jail or at least facing criminal charges. For his own crimes, were he not the president of the United States and given that uh, dispensation that only the president of the United States for some reason uh, seems to be given. And it's not a constitutional issue. uh, It's just a decision made by the Justice Department not to charge someone like Donald Trump. And by the way, if Donald Trump went to jail, I think Donald Trump should be allowed to vote. Um, so it is. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, hypocrisy <laughs> and uh, deterrence. You also note that there is uh, a lot of context that is lost here. In that, folks like the Boston Marathon bomber or the Charleston shooter, et cetera, they're actually the vast exception to those who are currently incarcerated. We're talking about millions and millions of people who are in jail for, uh, for you know, all all manner of of nonviolent crimes.
0: Well, it's interesting because we call ourselves the land of the free, but the United States locks up more people than any other nation on Earth, a half million more than China, uh, which has five times our population. Mm -hmm. And although we account for less than 5% of the world's uh, population, we account for almost 25% of the world's prisoners. So in this mass incarceration, without going into all the details which we've covered previously, as to why it, why it is what it is in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the prison industrial complex, the private prison industry making money, the the corporations exploiting prison slave labor for as little as seventeen cents an hour. Um, not only do you have those, but you have some people in prison that really are uh, come out of prison as rather remarkable advocates for uh, social change. And you know they, the the right wants to point to people like the, the Boston Marathon bomber, but they ignore the fact that when he was in jail, Martin Luther King penned his letter from a Birmingham jail, which is one of the, one of the most profound uh, civil liberties documents ever presented. Mm-hmm. Nelson Mandela spent 27 years in prison, would go on to become uh, uh, South Africa's first black president, and uh, received the Nobel Peace Prize. So. You know, what good does society receive from taking the vote away from people like them in addition to putting them behind bars?
1: Nothing. Uh, it, it's, it's for us, apparently. It's not for them. It's to make us feel better and actually not even make all of us feel better, but a certain uh, uh, a certain segment of the population who would like to see, um, you know, a lot of those African-Americans who are uh, disproportionately in jail not have a voice uh, it works out great for them and so it's it's somewhat shameful i find uh frankly when uh democrats are demurring on this bernie sanders uh has been pretty clear on this and by the way just to clear are are you in fact uh, working with the vets for bernie group in uh the well, new campaign
0: we're not currently with any organized activity but i will eventually uh when when things get under I'll, I'll rejoin them and and do it again.
1: Now other than <laughs> for
0: now I'm technically not. Okay,
1: <laughs> but you're still uh you're still a Sanders man. I want to put that uh up here uh front and center. Now other than him, uh ha- how have the uh Democrats responded when you have seen them when they've been uh asked about this issue so far?
0: Well, I've been pleased with two responses. Uh, Elizabeth Warren, although, you know, she stops short of of uh, of it, she said she's not yet there yet, but doesn't mean she's rejected as out of hand. And Kamala Harris, who's a former prosecutor, as you know, in fact, she was our state attorney general here in California, mm-hmm. has said, and I'll quote her, she said, We should have that conversation. So these are not people that are saying, Oh, it's terrible, and I'm, I don't even want to discuss it. They're, they're open to, to having a serious discussion about it, which is what, to me, is what a Democratic election should be all about.
1: Uh, a small D-Democratic election and a large D-Democratic yeah. election, I guess, in this case. Um, what about now, you write about this, and I'll point folks to your uh, your piece at bradblog.com, Inmate Voting is Not a Radical Idea. What about uh, this middle ground that you write about, uh, sort of like the one that uh, you know was was uh, sort of enacted, and at least until it was undermined on Friday, I guess, in Florida, where in that case, Amendment 4, Voting rights were restored, in that case for former felons, but uh, only for former felons that were not murderers or sex offenders. Is that a reasonable way to win folks over on this issue when it comes to actual inmate voting, uh, putting some sort of restrictions on it, Uh, no murderers, no uh, sexual uh, felons, sexual predators uh, should be allowed to vote, but everyone else uh, has that right to vote?
0: Well, part of that you can look at uh, in in the way of... uh, what other people have done now for example with where there's no restrictions at all on inmate voting mm-hmm. uh, in addition to maine and vermont there are 20 other democracies including uh, canada sweden and israel that allow mm-hmm. all prisoners to vote mm-hmm. but there are also uh i think 14 nations that uh, that uh, i think that's the right number that that also allow um or a good number of nations that also allow most inmates to vote, but, but restrict it for some felonies. So it could be done. It's more of a, a tactic, because I don't really think there's a reasonable basis for taking them away from anyone. But if, if some people are just, you know, they're just so offended that, say, the Boston Marathon bomber cast a vote, you know, it just horrifies them before, he, before they take his life, then um, maybe that's a way to get the initial change in. The difference in Florida, by the way, is that we're talking about a post-release disenfranchisement, right. which is is totally different from the whole idea of inmate disenfranchisement. And uh, of the states that are still have that, to, to go against what they're doing, you know, one of the things that, that Bernie talked about was a slippery slope, and that certainly appears to be the case with with felony disenfranchisement laws. In two thousand, when Greg Palace, you know, did a study on this, thousands mm. of Perfectly innocent people. They, the, only thing, the only crime they'd committed was either being Democrat or, or, or black or both, right. and they were removed uh, uh, from the, uh, on a scrub list from the computerized voting rolls because they, they had the same or similar names to people who had been felons. Right. And so a lot of legitimate voters were disenfranchised to that election, which probably changed the course of history since the official count, yep. and even that, even that official count's questionable, the right. official count only gave Florida and the presidency by 537
1: votes. You're right. So, I mean, this is a matter of uh, keeping... Current inmates from voting, former uh, inmates from voting, and uh, people who have names that sound like inmates, former inmates from voting. That's a whole hell of a lot of disenfranchisement. And it's interesting, one of the points you uh, uh, bring up, and you've written about this over the years at Bradblog.com, Uh, About, you know, the the prison industrial complex, the essentially the slave labor that is available to industry inside of prisons. Well, inmates do not get to vote on those policies for or against prison slave labor policies. And uh, similarly, you know, it's ironic last November. I I wasn't sure if that. constitutional amendment in Florida was even going to pass. It has to pass with 60%. It ended up passing with almost 65%. But I wasn't sure it was going to pass because, ironically, there's a million and a half former federal prisoners, or former uh, uh, felons, I should say, in Florida who did not have the right to vote on whether they should have the right to vote. Thankfully, Floridians did the right thing last year Uh, which Republicans, uh, state lawmakers there, are now trying to undermine. But, boy, you're right. You know, there is a lot of hypocrisy here. And in the land of the free, uh, it sure seems, and and the world's greatest democracy, it sure does seem like we ought to uh, improve our democracy along those lines. Uh, Ernie Canning, I will point folks over to your piece. Inmate voting is not a radical idea at bradblog.com, where you got a lot of facts and a lot of helpful links. I think uh, progressives out there should begin to wrap their heads around this idea. If we're going to stand for democracy, uh, I think we all need to stand for everyone's right to vote. Uh, Ernie Canning, you can find his work at bradblog.com, and if you like, you can argue with him, as I do, on the Twitters, where he is Can4ing, that's C-A-N-N, the number four, I-N-G. Ernie, thanks as ever for joining us, my friend. Thank you, Brad. Take care. You bet. Okay, running late, as usual. So <laughs> thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks to everyone for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email if you like. I am Bradcast at Bradblog.com and on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the BradBlog. See ya there. Also, my thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves without any ads whatsoever, just your support. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.